Thanks for checking out the Bridge Podcast. It's not a mistake you found us. We pray God speaks to you today. Check us out Sundays at 10.30 a.m. For more information, go to sfbridge.org. It is so good to be with our church family this morning. I have missed you guys. It feels like I have not been with you for a while because I spent most of this week sick, but I'm back, baby, and I cannot wait uh, to be with you guys. So, hey, kids in the room, you're going to go back with Miss Monica. You're going to have a good time. I love getting to worship with you guys on Sunday morning, too. That's super, super fun, and our team is just crushing it. So, Christmas season is in full swing around here, and doesn't it look good in here? Doesn't it look so good in here? Like our our team decorated it. They 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 were they were in here working their tails off all week long, trying to make this place look good, and they have done a fantastic job, uh, if I can say so myself, and I can because I didn't do any of it. So uh, they are awesome. We had a great time at our tree lighting. It was really 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 cold, but it was fun, it was festive, and we're ready to kick off Christmas fully. So, are you guys ready for Christmas? Because here's what I'm going to say. I will acknowledge, last Sunday, if you were here, I kind of threw Hallmark right underneath the bus and drove over it and then backed over it again and then drove back over it again um, and kind of like just kicked it to the curb. So, I felt it was only right that since I kicked Hallmark to the curb, and apparently a lot of you guys in here are fans of Hallmark. I didn't realize that. Um, but I feel like it's only fair I subject myself to some scrutiny this morning. Is that okay with everybody? Because I feel like I, I felt like I did something wrong, so now it's my turn to fall on the sword. So I'm going to give you my five hot takes this morning about Christmas movies. All right? So just as a reminder, this is a church, okay? So no, no stoning of me, no throwing things at me when I give you these hot takes because they are uh, a little dicey. So are you guys ready this morning? Hot take number one. Home Alone is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Wow, it wasn't as bad as I thought, okay? There's something good about Home Alone, right? Like it's just, it's a good, feel-good story. Uh, parents in the room, you know sometimes things don't go always as planned, and sometimes uh, your kids can be delightful. And uh, Home Alone just makes me crave mac and cheese. Like, there's something about when he sits down and he makes himself that macaroni and cheese, you're like, I need some of that. And Home Alone is just a great, great film. I, I, I got to say, it's, it's my number one. I know it's not number one for a lot of people. It's on the list, but it's not number one. But here's what I'm going to say. Number two, um, I'm scared about this one. So feel free to voice your approval or disapproval about this next one. But here we go. It's a Wonderful Life. It's overrated. <laughs> I knew I was in trouble with this one. That's why I had to give the statement, like, we're in a church, so nobody kill me, Okay. It's overrated. It really is. I watched it for the first time uh, with Meg when we were engaged, I believe, or dating. I can't remember exactly. I remember distinctly getting halfway through this movie and asking my wife, why do people like this? 
Like, why? It's so depressing. If I wanted to watch someone's life fall apart, I would just watch the news, okay? But I want to watch a good, feel-good Christmas movie, and it's like a two-hour-long movie, and you get like five minutes of happiness at the end. So not only are you subjected to like this sadness for so long, but it's also in black and white, and like, I am shallow. I like color in my movies, okay? So it's a wonderful life. It's overrated. And I was vowing I would never watch it again until last night. <laughs> when I told, when there was an ad for It's a Wonderful Life, and Meg goes, oh, I love that movie. And I went, I'm talking about it tomorrow at church. And she goes, you better not hate it. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm kind of, I was like, you'll have to wait and see. She goes, you will be watching it this Christmas again with me. So I will be watching it this Christmas again with her. Number three, the original Grinch cartoon is the greatest of the whole series. Jim Carrey's is a close second. I'll give you that. Like, it's really, really good. Borderline scary, but it's really, really good. But the original Grinch cartoon, which appears in the best Christmas film, Home Alone, right? In Home Alone, like, they're watching the Grinch together uh, or by himself. Uh, when he's got the whole bowl of ice cream on the end table and it's like oozing over and all like the adults in the room are like, oh gosh, it just gives me the, cr- the cringe. Uh, no good. But number four, I think I'm going to have some supporters of this one. Number four, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Do you know how many men just went like this to me? Maybe the first time ever in the church, but you guys were like, Yeah. It's a Christmas movie, baby. We're watching it. And, and you know, what, what, what's kind of the justification for it being a Christmas movie? Um, do, they, do they, like, you know, sit down by the Christmas tree? No. Um, does it have the plot of a Christmas movie? No. Why is it a Christmas movie? It takes place during Christmas. Good enough, right? And for some of you, Die Hard, the plot of Die Hard is kind of like your family Christmas. There's some tension, okay? Number five. A Christmas story is incredibly scary. It is terrifying, okay? I have nightmares when I was a kid of the bully who's got like the raccoon hat with the, with the braces. That dude is terrifying, okay? Like there is something about him. And when Ralphie is at the mall and the elf is like, is like kicking him down the slide, it is actually scary. It's almost as scary as the Wizard of Oz. Because that's scary too. And I know some of you guys are like, what the heck is wrong with you? If you come to the bridge long enough, you'll find out there's a lot. But in any case, a Christmas story is literally about a little boy who has to endure uh, bullies. He has to endure everybody in his life telling him he can't have what he wants. And the world's craziest elf and Santa complex in the mall. Like, if, if they had that same elf and Santa at every mall, I don't think I would ever want to see Santa again. But A Christmas Story, as good as it is, it is scary. And I'm going to stand behind that full fledged. But here's what I will say about A Christmas Story. The reason I actually really do love this movie. It didn't make my top five list, but it's up there. But here's what I love about it. Hallmark is like this picturesque, everything's perfect, right? A Christmas story, everything hits the fan all the time. Like, like, like 
they, they, they try to like make the dinner together, and then uh, the dad, bur- like the dogs eat the thing, right? And so they have to go have like, Chinese food for dinner. And then Ralph, he has all this plan about going to see Santa, and then he gets kicked down the slide. Like every single well-intentioned good plan that goes on in a Christmas story doesn't work out. It doesn't. But at the very end of the movie, there's joy and happiness. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. But here's why I love It's a Wonderful Life. Meg just texted me up here. No, Karen! Meg just texted me, yet you don't like It's a Wonderful Life. The reason I love It's a a Christmas Story is because it is much more similar to real life. It kind of has that same concept of, you know what, stuff tried to happen, but it didn't. And that is much more what reality is like. As we approach Christmas, a lot of us have some really, really good, well-intentioned plans. We're going to get our Christmas shopping done early. We're going to make a nice, nice meal for Christmas. We're going to do X, Y, Z. But if you find out long enough during the Christmas season, sometimes stuff just doesn't go according to plan. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than looking at a Christmas story with Ralphie and his brother. What's his name? Anybody remember his name? I don't remember. Randy, thank you very much. He shows how much I love the movie. Um, by the way, Randy is like a, a picture of what it looks like when I go hunting because I get really cold. So I kind of walk out to my hunting stuff like that, like Randy. But instead of looking at their life, instead of looking at that movie, we're going to look at the Christmas story. The Christmas story about Jesus's birth. And so for the next few weeks at the bridge, we're going to do a Christmas series called Christmas Characters. The Christmas story of Jesus coming into existence, coming onto the earth, is one you've probably heard at a Christmas Eve service before. It's probably one that you maybe heard when you were growing up as a kid. Maybe it's one you read to your kids um, during the Christmas season. Whatever it looks like, you've probably heard of it before. You've seen the wise men and the magi and the nice little nativity scene and all that stuff. But we're going to take some of the other nuanced characters a part of the story and just kind of unpack what it looked like for them. Because I believe every single character a part of this Christmas story actually kind of helps tell the full story. So if you guys are ready, here's what I need. We're going to get excited today. If you're ready to kick off Christmas officially here at the bridge, give me one loud yeah. There we go. Come on now. I'm excited. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. As we look at the characters of Christmas, I'm going to start with one that actually enters the scene after Jesus was born. You see, in this little excerpt right here, you have two different sets of characters. You have the Magi. (coughs) Excuse me. And you've probably heard of these guys before. They're also known as the wise men. Okay, 
the wise men or the magi, whichever you choose to refer to them as, are the same people. And what they were is they were actually astronomers, okay? And so they would actually be out in the countryside looking up at the constellations, studying the different movements up in the sky. And so one night they're sitting there when they notice a unique star in the sky, a star they've never seen before, a star that's never been really in existence before. And there's something significant about this star other than the fact that it just looked different. In Numbers chapter 24, you actually find out that the birth of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus, would actually usher in a star into the sky. And so being in the Jewish culture, they knew that. They were well familiar with the ancient text. So when they saw the star in the sky, they went, oh my gosh, it's happening. It's happening. Jesus is alive. Jesus came into the earth. He is here. We got to go. And so they dropped everything. And what I never really realized is they were a long ways away. Like they were thousands of miles away when they saw the star for the first time. So they had to take a multiple month journey to get to Jerusalem to try and go and visit Jesus when he was born. But it proves the fact that they were that excited to go and see Jesus. They were that encouraged about what this actually meant for them. But let's contrast that with the character we're going to study today. King Herod. Herod the Great, as he was called. Now, King Herod's response to this great news was a little different. The Bible says he was disturbed or troubled. Now, the reason that King Herod was considered great was not because he was a great guy and had an upstanding character. He was a really great builder, okay? He loved to, he loved to build things. He built a really nice palace in a place called Masada. Uh, he rebuilt the Jewish temple. He was a really, really good builder. But King Herod had a bit of a control problem. And when I say a bit, I mean a glaring red beacon on his forehead that said, I have issues with control. Big problem, okay? King, er, King Herod was a paranoid man. Here's how paranoid he was. Any perceived threat to him or his throne was immediate grounds to him to take action. So here's what I mean by that. When I talk about a big control problem, um, his wife was talking to another person outside of his rule, and he suspected her of being unfaithful to him, so he had her executed. Okay, um, his two boys had some friends outside of the, the army, outside of, of his kind of little thing here. And because he was worried that they would grow up and they'd be a part of the opposing alliance, he actually had them killed as well. So when I say he had a problem with control, I mean he had a problem with not having the full picture at his disposal. And instead of letting it come into existence, he just took it into his own so when King Herod is sitting in his palace, and he's sitting there, and he's sitting on his throne, and these magi roll into town after a month-long journey and say, where's the newborn king? We've come to worship him. He didn't take it super well. He was disturbed. He was troubled because he knew that a newborn king meant that maybe his throne was in jeopardy. So here's what he does. He calls together all the religious priests and the chief officials and says, all right, here's what we got to do. We got to find out where Jesus was born. They look back at the old text. They look back in the Old Testament and they see 
Bethlehem is where the Messiah is supposed to be born. So here's what he says in verse 7 and 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. You think he wanted to worship King Jesus? No. He wanted to be like, hey, I'll worship him by putting him in the grave. He was a psycho. King Herod was an actual psycho. Okay, so what he's doing here is he's saying, hey, Magi, you don't know I'm corrupt. You don't know I've got issues. So here's what I'm going to tell you to do. I got some stuff going on here. I, I, I got a lot of things on my plate being king and all. So here's what I'll have you do. You go find him. And when you find him, let me know because then I will come there and worship him with you. But there's a reason that there's no precious moments figurine of King Herod. You guys got the nativity scene at home with all the nice characters and everything. King Herod didn't make the cut, right? He's not a good dude. So why in the world are we talking about such an opposition to who Jesus was? I believe King Herod is a perfect representation of how futile it is to try and control the destiny of something God's already put into motion. King Herod, as we're going to find out here, tried to do everything he could to try and derail the plan that God had. But it didn't matter. Because the plan that God has will prevail whether we put effort into it or not. His plan is unshakable. Which to King Herod was news. Because for King Herod, his entire life, he was able to manipulate and control his way into every situation of life. The reason he was even in the king's spot was because he was a brown-nosing guy who's, who said one thing to this guy, one thing to this guy, and weaseled his way right into the king's spot. He did everything to control his own destiny because he was predicated under the idea that I can do what I want and I'll make it happen. And if I'm scared about something happening, I'll make sure it doesn't because I'll move everything else out of the way. He was in control. He called the shots. He was in charge of what happened or didn't happen until he wasn't. Until he met a force. Until he met a plan that was too big for him to even have control of. See, he was the king. He had resources. He had abilities. He could move and shake things. He could do whatever he wanted with next to no accountability because he was the king. Until he met a plan that could not even be changed by him. Matthew chapter 2, verse 12. After the Magi left, after they go and leave King Herod's palace, here's what we find. Having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And here's where Herod exits. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Jerusalem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. 
in accordance with the time he learned from the Magi. Then what was said to the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. He knew he was outsmarted. He knew the Magi weren't coming back. So instead of trying to highlight the one person, he said, you know what? Kill all the two-year-olds, two and under, because one of those has to be King Jesus. He was so desperate that he would do anything to control his own destiny. The only problem was, again, God's plan will prevail. God's plan is inevitably the one that will come through no matter what else happens. My favorite verse in this whole story, in this whole passage, is that last one. What was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. What that tells me is that before Jesus even came into the earth, before he even was born, God knew that King Herod would try to kill him. He knew, but it didn't scare him because he knew that his plan's greater than any opposition that could come his way. The prophet Jeremiah, what he said was fulfilled. Can we talk about God's plan for a little bit this morning? Because when I look at this story, when I look at this season of life, when I look at King Herod, I see a man who was contingent upon being in control. But also when I look at this story, I see at the end of the day, he never was in control. Because God is the one who's always in control. And as someone who really likes my control, as someone who really likes to be in control of what happens to me or what doesn't happen to me, who likes to know the full picture all the time, I read this story and I can criticize and judge King Herod all I want. But the dude was trying to control his own destiny, and he couldn't. And when I look at myself in the mirror, the more I realize as much as I have my plans, as much as I have my desires, at the end of the day, I know God's plan is the one that will reign true. I can try and manipulate things. I can try and do things. But you cannot control outcomes. You can only manipulate results. You can try and control what happens to you or what doesn't happen to you. You can try and avoid everything that is going to come your way. But at the end of the day, we don't have that power. We can only manipulate certain things to work temporarily. So what is God's plan? What is this whole idea of God's plan? Because the idea is universally, this idea of God's plan is something I think a lot of us wrestle with. I've been sitting on the floor at a youth retreat at camp with kids, teenagers who are sitting there with tears in their eyes going, I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. I feel like I'm supposed to do this. I feel like I'm supposed to do that, but I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. What should I do? I've sat across the table from a successful business executive who has everything. He's got the car. He's got the house. He's got the success. He's got a whole entourage of employees that could do anything that he wanted. And he sits across from me and says, I don't know what's missing from my life. I don't know what God wants me to do. I've sat across from a 78, 79-year-old who says, I have my kids. I have my grandkids. They're all doing their own thing. I'm just here now, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do with the rest of my life. It doesn't matter whether you're old or young, whether you're tall or short. The idea of what's God's plan for my life is something that I think every single person in this room at some point has probably wrestled with. 
And in a lot of ways, God's plan seems kind of ambiguous. It seems kind of mysterious or vague. Like you have to turn the right levers or turn the right knob to kind of pull out God's plan, right? But when I look at the birth story of Jesus, when I look at King Herod, I've realized that God's plan is not something to be understood. It's something to be followed. If you try and sit down and figure out why God is doing that or doing that, you will never, ever step out in faith. Because God's plan is not always what makes sense to us. It's not always what we think we want or what we need. We try to tell him, right? God, would you do this for me? Would you move this mountain for me? Would you do this? But if it's not the best thing for us, he won't do it. Because his plan is something that we can't always understand. But it's something we sure can follow. As a sophomore, I transferred to North Central University from NDSU. It's a big difference. I went from being a chemistry major to a ministry major. And in the process, um, I desired, or I found out that my freshman year, I was so busy, I hardly had time to use the bathroom, let alone think about women. Um, and so when I switched to North Central, um, all of a sudden I realized on my second day there that there was a particular individual who was incredibly beautiful and smoking hot, if I can be honest. <coughs> and she's right there, by the way, just so we're all clear, okay? But I will never, ever forget the origin story of my wife and I because what had to go into it was nothing short of miraculous. See, our, Meg and I, our story started when one day we were walking home from an intramural football game, and I had been going off, right? And she was like super, super impressed. She's like, oh, that guy is legit. I got I to gotta get a part of that. Don't shake your head. They don't have to know we're lying. <laughs> the reality is there was other guys on my team who were doing a lot of that, and I was doing a whole lot of nothing. But the thing of it was is after this intramural football game, we were walking back, and if you don't know the full story about Meg and I, I actually had a crush on Meg far longer than she realized. And so we were walking back from the football game, and there was a billboard that flashed that said um, NDSU on it. And I said, hey, NDSU, I used to go there. don't know why I need to say that out loud, but I did. And Meg looks at me and goes, I thought you were a freshman. Do I look like a freshman? All right. Don't shake your head. Um, Meg totally thought I was a freshman, but when that billboard came on, she goes, oh, you're a freshman? She goes, oh, okay. So what happened is throughout this whole experience, that kind of started a conversation between Meg and I because um, she had thought I was some just freshman or younger brother of a freshman. I looked super, super young. But when, when Meg and I finally got together, months, months later, we looked back and realized, how in the world did we end up together? Because here's what happened. I originally went to NDSU as a freshman. And God completely changed my trajectory, changed my plan, and moved me to North Central. And so I was moving in, in with my two best friends as my roommates. And so we happened to get paired with this random floor in this random dorm, in this random room, with the last one that was left, and we got paired there. Meg, throughout this whole process, had knew she wanted to be an RA of her floor or a, a DL, as they call them there, at North Central. And with a part of that, they pair you with another floor. And so the one floor that got paired with mine was the one floor she didn't want when she stepped in. She goes, like, I'll be a part of any other floor, but I do not want this floor. 
and that's the one that, that the Lord had just placed her in, which was really, really great, right? And so had it not been for me being placed in this room and her being placed on this floor, we would have never crossed paths. Had we never had the NDSU billboard, she would have never known I was actually her age. Uh, she would have never known that I was actually really good looking. Uh, all those good things. But when, you look at, when we look back at our trajectory and our past, we could tell from the beginning that God literally was making the smallest, smallest steps to be able to cross our path together. If you forget one detail, if there was just one other misstep outside of that, odds are she would have never been on my floor. She would have never gotten to know my great personality because my looks aren't always the first thing that sticks out. All these different things. And so without that unique plan, I would have maybe never met the most amazing person in my life. I would have never got to experience the life that we have. We never got to experience the life of our two little blessings. When I look at all of this, I could have never sat down and mapped out what it looked like to marry my wife. And I'm so grateful for it. Because if I would have picked out my plan, if I would have picked out my intentions, my ideas, odds are it would have not been nearly as great as what I have now. We like to be in control. We like to kind of have things mapped out the way we want to. But the reality is, is that God knows us so well that he knows exactly what we need more than we know ourselves. The word says that he knows the number of hairs on our heads. The thoughts that he has outnumbered the grains of sand. It's one of my favorite Bible verses. Because so many times I think I know myself the best. It's a pretty good ascertain, or assumption. But the reality is that God who created us knows us better than we know ourselves. And as such, he knows exactly what we need in our life more than we do. So instead of trying to control the destiny, I've learned to try to, to, try to understand it is futile. To try and control it is even more futile. But to trust it and to follow it has led to blessing. It's led to fruit. It's led to good things. Does it mean it's always easy? No. Which is exactly what happened in the story of Jesus, right? If you put, your, if you put yourself into, Jesus, or into Mary and Joseph's shoes with, with Jesus, they were engaged to be married. They had everything mapped out. They were young and dumb and in love. And all of a sudden now they have to raise a baby. Oh, yeah. The Messiah, the most important person of the world. It's enough to be nervous about being a parent. Can you imagine raising Jesus? Like that's a, that's a whole lot of pressure. And so imagine you go through this whole experience and you get all the way done. And now God's saying, hey, um, I know you guys just had a kid, but <coughs> I want you to pick up and go to Egypt. No, like that sounds like a terrible idea. Can you imagine traveling on foot in the desert with a newborn? No, thank you. It would not be super, super fun. But the idea is that God had a plan from the beginning. And instead of fighting it, instead of trying to go the whole way without it, I have learned that the more you try to control your own life, the more you will feel out of control. The more you try and white-knuckle your life and try and... like. Get everything else out of that way. Make your way this way. The more you try to hold on to and control your life, the more internally you will feel out of control. 
You will feel like people are coming after you. You will feel like, like the world's against you. You will feel all these different things unless you just let happen what happened. A mentor friend of mine gave me one of the greatest tools because in this first or second year of my ministry here at the church, I really, really, really wanted our youth to get it. I felt like we were kind of stuck. I felt like I wasn't doing a great enough job. I felt like I wanted to see our youth ministry grow, not just numerically, but in depth and all these different things. And I was sitting there just spinning my wheels, trying to figure out how I was going to do it, how I was going to like, make this place blow up. And a mentor friend of mine, it was one of the greatest things he's done. It's something I do to this day. He said, I want you to grab a piece of paper and draw a line right down the middle. Look at that straight line. And here's what he said. He goes, I want you to write down on the left side what you can control. I want you to write down the things that you literally can make sure happen. The things that you 100% can control. And on the right side, I want you to write down things that are out of your control. Okay? So I started talking, he goes, talk me through it. So, like, he goes, like, I, I feel like I can, I can, like, you know, do certain things to, to make our youth ministry go. He goes, no, no. He goes, you can't control the size of your ministry. You can't make somebody come to your youth ministry. You can't. You can't control that. What can you control? You can control how many, how many times you reach out. So, hey, I'm going to, reaching out is here, right? But on this side, who comes to the youth ministry on this side? And it went on and on and on and on. And do you know what I found out? This side ended about here. This side ended about here. When you sit down in your life and you look at how much is actually out of your control, things that you cannot dictate whether they happen or not, it's significant. It's extensive. But the few things you can control are the things that will inevitably lead to these things if you just trust. Do you know what goes on this side in my life right now? My attitude. I always used to hate, my wife is an optimist. She's amazing. And whenever I was in these seasons of life, I felt stuck. The, the thing that I always hated, she would say, is like, just, just think positive. I hated that. Can I tell you that? Because like, if it was that easy, I would just do it, right? Like, just think positive. Like, I hated that. Or like, you got to control your attitude. It's like, I can't, right? It feels so impossible sometimes. But the reality is, when I have sat down in seasons of my life and realized, you know what? God is going to work out the rest. I need to be, understand that I'm going to control what I can control. This exact conversation happened to us. Not, not more than a few days ago. My wife and I have been, like, we have, we have our budget, and life is going good. But my wife's grandfather passed away about a week and a half ago. And she had to jump on a plane in a moment's notice and get over there. And so it's an unexpected expense. It's an unexpected bill in our budget. There's been a few other unexpected things that have happened over time, right? And so we're sitting there going like, whew. Like, it's going to be tight this month, right? You have all these things that happen that you couldn't have foreseen coming. We found so much peace when we sat down and realized, you know what? We have done what we can do. 
We've had our budget. We've done our things. What has come our way is out of our control. So instead of sitting there and stressing out, we're going to trust that God's going to take care of us like he always has. Like he always has. When I look at this story, I see two responses to the birth of Jesus in the direction of God. And I see two different outcomes. I see one set of characters who heard what God said, despite how crazy it was, despite how unsure it was, who responded and said yes. And in the process, they were taken care of. They were provided for. They were safe. By all accounts, they were at peace. And then you see another character who fought God's plan tooth and nail. King Herod opposed it. He tried to stop it. He tried to get rid of it. He was in opposition to God's plan the whole way. And how did he live his life? He was furious. He was uneasy. He was unhappy. You might not understand what God's doing in your life, but it doesn't mean that he doesn't know. You might sit here and try and piece together why God's doing what he's doing. It doesn't make logical sense in your life. But it doesn't mean he's not still in control. It doesn't mean he still doesn't still got you. God's plan for your life is static and not linear. We think logistically. We think on a linear plane. But God's plan sometimes looks like this, right? Some really good moments and some really, really life-altering, life-crippling things that happen. They might have been a part of God's plan. They might have been things that he never wished on you. But regardless, they happen. And instead of fighting it, instead of resisting it, I have learned if we just let go and trust, we'll understand that we're right where we're supposed to be. In trusting him. One of my top five favorite Bible characters, not yet mentioned today, is Paul. Paul, if you open up the new, if you open up your Bible and go to the New Testament, just go to a random book of the Bible in the New Testament. Odds are Paul wrote it because he wrote like two-thirds of the New Testament. But Paul's life of faith was not one that we think of when we think about an author of the Bible. Just read this, what he wrote in Galatians chapter 1. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. Paul spent his teenage years, his young adult years, literally dismantling and dismembering the Christian church, throwing Christians in jail, getting behind persecutions that led to death of Christians. He was the most anti-Christian, anti-church of the time. He was the poster child for it. Until we see in the book of Acts 
that one day he's walking on a towel on the way to give them papers saying, if you even say the word Jesus, you'll go to jail. He's holding the papers in his hand. When God comes down in a, a dramatic thing saying, go to this house. In a few days, someone's going to come to pray for you. But just know, Paul, the God that you're trying to persecute, I'm real. And I'm here. And I'm going to change your life. When I read this story, I read it this week and it stuck out to me like a beacon. When you set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. God brought Paul onto the earth knowing full well for years he would spend his life doing exactly the opposite of what God would want for him. But it didn't matter because he still set him apart as a baby to do something special. You can be outside of God's plan for your life. You can be running in the other direction for years. You can still be doing it, but it doesn't matter because God's plan is static, not linear. If you've missed it up until this point, it doesn't matter. Jump right back into what he has planned for you because he's going to make it happen regardless of whether you want to or not. His plan is unshakable. Psalm 139 16 says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God's got your plan and your life mapped out. And we feel out of control sometimes. We feel like life is moving too fast, too chaotic, too nuts. We can't wrap ourselves around it. But that's exactly the point. Instead of trying to hold on to our own life, we're supposed to hold on to him. We're supposed to follow what he wants us to do. But can I just give you an encouragement? I think it's a lot easier to follow God's plan when God's plan seems like a good thing. God's plan is a lot harder to follow when you're wrestling with crippling grief. God's plan is a lot harder to follow when you've prayed for something over and over and over again and it still feels like it's not working. God's plan for your life seems like a really good thing until it's hard. Until it's difficult. But I just feel like when you're going through those seasons of life, when God's plan feels really, really hard, when God feels really, really distant, when it just feels like you're so dry, you're just so fed up with life and its demands, it's hard to come to church, it's hard to read this book, it's hard to pray, it's hard to be around people. But this verse, I believe, in a season of one of my drier seasons, I read this and it just absolutely wrecked me. It's in Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. It's hard to do sometimes, right? But watch this. I want you to cling on to each one of these lines with power. 
praise the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins, heals all your diseases, redeems your life from the pit, crowns you with love and compassion, satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. When God's plan is tough to trust, it feels like he doesn't care. It feels like he's not there. But the fact that he forgives all of my mistakes, the mistakes that I still make every single day, the fact that he heals all the diseases, we can, we can empathize with that one right now, right? The whole world feels sick. When you're in bed and you can't help but get out of bed without shaking, this verse comes to life, healing your diseases. How about this one? He who redeems your life from the pit. If you're in a pit, you don't have to do a certain amount of Hail Marys. You don't have to give everything you have to the church. Neither of those things are bad. But the answer is not what you do, it's who he is. It's entrusting him and saying, God, I don't feel it right now. I don't know what's going on. It feels like my whole life is falling apart, God. I don't know what you're doing, but I will praise you. I will praise you. Not because it's easy, not because it's emotionally there, but because I remember that this is who you are. That you heal my sins, you heal my diseases, you redeem my life from the pit. And here's the best one. Your desires are met with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. As we go into Christmas, wherever you're at, my prayer for you is that you understand God has good things in store for your life. Oftentimes, out of the ashes. Out of the tough things. God's plan not be derailed. Whoever comes against you, whatever has been done against you, it doesn't matter because God's plan will prevail in the end. And you're going to be so much better off if you're willing to trust it through completion. Because it will happen regardless. Will you pray with me this morning? I want to pray for a refreshing for each of us. for a refreshing of your situation and for an awareness of who God is. So Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you that you've got a plan. The miscarriage, the death, the divorce, the loss of a job, the loss of a person, the relationship issues, whatever has come our way, that has made our life feel out of rhythm, out of sync, out of control. It's not too big for you, Jesus. It's not too powerful that your love and your grace can't overpower. So God, in the midst of it, in the midst of the waiting, before the test becomes a testimony, 
I pray, God, that you would fill each person in this room, each person listening to me with your love and your compassion. I pray, God, that you would reveal yourself to them in a whole new way, maybe for the first time, that you are real and you do got this. I just pray for a refreshing. But God, for those in this room, maybe we have never had that, never had that assurance that you're real. God, I just pray that they would feel you in a whole new way. That the birth of Jesus meant that we could be forgiven of our sins. We could find freedom. And if they want that, Jesus, I pray that those in this room would understand it's a matter of acknowledging our sin, asking for forgiveness, and trusting that God's got us. So God, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you that we can trust your plan, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Would you go with us today? Would you show us small things we can do while we wait for your breakthrough? Would you show us what we can do, what we can control, and let us let go of the things that we can't? We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen. This has been a podcast of The Bridge Church. Have a great week. Stop in Sunday sometime and visit. If you would like to give, you can do so online at sfbridge.org. Have a great week.